last week I shared this statement with you that everyone sins. What you do after you sin makes the difference between life and death. Okay? Everyone sins. It's what you do after your sin that will make the difference between life and death. Last week, as we are working our way through the life of David, we saw the steps he took that destroyed his life. Today, we're going to see some of what he did after his sin, and we're going to see it from the perspective of not how to destroy your life, but how to restore your life. Everyone sins. It's what you do after your sin that makes the difference between life and death. There's a verse in Proverbs I want you to take notice of before we begin. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13 simply says this, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. You see, that verse in Proverbs assumes what I just told you, that everyone sins. It's what you do after the sin that makes the difference between life and death. This is a picture of two scenarios. The person who conceals his sin, that person will not prosper. But the person who will confess his sin, the person who will forsake his sin, that person will find mercy. As we come to 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see that David has been caught in his sin. His sin is about to be explained to him, and we're going to read his reaction to that sin. What occurs in our text took place about a year after David's sin. We know that because back then it took about nine months to have a baby. And so the babies, I know that's astute observation, that's why I went to seminary was to be able to figure that kind of stuff out. And so it's about a year after David's sin that he is confronted by, for lack of a better term, the nation's pastor whose name was Nathan, and no one knows about his sin. He's been concealing it. No one knows about his sin except for David, the person against whom he sinned, Bathsheba, And maybe a couple of other people around who had to join in the conspiracy, but God's going to let his pastor know, and Nathan is going to confront David. Look at our text, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan came to David, and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. You know when a stray animal comes around your house, and that stray animal is stray until you name it, right? And once you name it, it's over. 
Well, this little ewe lamb was named, okay? This is the family pet. Verse 4, now there came a traveler to the rich man, and this traveler was unwilling to take one of his own, or the rich man, rather, was unable to take one of his uh, own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, The sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, notice his response. He's been consenting, he's been hiding his sin. But now in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now next week we're going to look at the full fallout of David's sin. And it's a tragic fallout, but that's for next week. What we're focusing on this week is this line that David gives us in verse 13, where he has been concealing his sin, but now he admits his sin, and now he confesses his sin. Now he has a heart of repentance toward his sin. And what David does after he's confronted with his sin, how he responds to that sin, this is what makes him a man after God's own heart. You see, for all of us in this room, we sin. And for all of us in this room, when we sin, we face a couple of options in how to handle our sin. Sometimes we try to do what David did for about a year. We just try to hide it. We try to deny it. We try to pretend that it's not there. Or sometimes maybe we try to rationalize our sin. We try to explain it away. We try to justify it. Or sometimes we might shift the blame for our sin to someone else. It's not really my fault. It's someone else's fault. Anyone ever done that with their sin? All right, everybody who's not raised your hand, are you a liar? All right, uh, everybody, and if you didn't, I, I, the Lord has to deal with you beyond that. 
Every single one, we've used those options, but, but the, the, the desirable option, what David ended up doing is he repented of his sin. You see, David understands that he cannot hide from his sin. He understands what Moses said in the book of Numbers, be sure your sin will find you out. David comes to a point to where he understands that he needs to offer repentance, and this is what makes David so different than Saul. You see, both David and Saul were sinners. When Saul was confronted with his sin, he made excuses, or he just denied it. When David, in this chapter, is confronted with his sin, he admits it. And in his repentance, David gives us an example in how we should respond to sin in our lives. And in giving us that example, he shows us what biblical, gospel-centered repentance looks like. And he shows us, through his example, how God can take any any life, no matter how badly we have destroyed it, that God can take any life and through his grace and mercy, he can restore it. Now, I need to take you to the book of Psalms to show you how that is true. Turn over to Psalm 51 because Psalm 51 is a prayer of David and he writes this psalm after Nathan has this meeting with him. So Nathan confronts him with his sin. David repents. So when it says in, verse, in, our, in, our, in our text earlier from 2 Samuel verse 13, where he says his sin to the Lord, I have sinned against God, what follows that is Psalm 51. This is his prayer to God. And in this prayer, we see what gospel-centered repentance looks like. So I want you to be very encouraged this morning to realize that when you slip and when you fall, there is a way for your life to be restored. That when you mess up and there's sin in your life, that does not have to define you. It does not have to destroy you. God is in the business of making masterpieces out of messes. God is in the business of taking things that are broken and putting them back together better than anyone else can. Even, we, even when they are in our attempts to do it, we have no hope, and Jesus and God can do that better than we can do it ourselves. But we have to get to biblical repentance. You see, sometimes I know it's hard for you to believe that I was not an always obedient child. But sometimes I would do something and I'd get caught as a child, and I'll be honest, sometimes as an adult. And I would say I'm sorry. But the reason I said I was sorry wasn't because I was sorry about what I'd done, it's because I was sorry I got caught. Don't look at me like that, you bunch of sinners. What, that, that's not repentance. Feeling guilty. Well, I kind of feel bad about it. That's not repentance. We're about to see what biblical repentance is. How do we have God restore our lives? I'll make four statements, okay? Statement number one is this. First, let's read Psalm 51. We should read that first. This is going to tell us. Psalm 51. 
Have mercy, David praying, have mercy to me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering, the sacrifices of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, a heart of repentance, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What a prayer. What a picture of repentance. Four things. Number one is this. Repentance is possible only when we depend upon God's mercy. Repentance is possible only when we depend upon the mercy of God. Have mercy on me, he said, oh God. According to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. It's important for us to note here what David is not basing his repentance upon. He doesn't base his repentance upon his past experience. He doesn't go, well, you know, God, remember that Goliath thing? I mean, I was, I was kind of on your team during that time. Remember that time that I had the chance to kill Saul, but instead I forgave him? No, he's not basing his plea on his past record of righteousness, nor does he base his repentance on his current circumstances. He's not rationalizing it away. He's not saying, well, God, if, if you hadn't put Bathsheba so close to my house, and, and if you hadn't uh, had her take a bath at that time, he does none of that. He's not basing this plea upon the circumstances he's, he finds himself in, nor does he base this repentance on future good behavior. Now, I'm going to be honest. I'll be transparent with you. This is my go-to when I get convicted of sin 
I, I, my default go-to is not to offer biblical repentance. God has to work on me to get me to that point. My default position is to uh, appeal to God based upon my future good intentions. Uh, uh, God, I will do better. God, if you will get me out of this mess, I will try my best not to get back into it. Again, don't look at me like that. <laughs> because we all have those tendencies. The only, listen to me, the only basis for David's plea, the only hope to which he clings is the mercy of God. See, God's mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve. See, our hearts and our actions that deserve condemnation and death, that heart, those actions, because of God's mercy, we do not receive what we deserve. You say, preacher, but you don't understand. I constantly, I continually mess up my life with sin. If that's your posture today, hear me and hear me very well because I have some wonderful news for you today. God's supply of mercy never dries up because his mercy as David told us, his mercy is tied to his steadfast love. This is why Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3 tells us that the steadfast love of the Lord never ever ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I want to encourage you this morning as you deal with sin to not try to hide it, to not try to deny it, to not try to blame shift I want to encourage you to simply throw yourself on the mercy of God, for that is our only hope. Statement number two. Repentance cannot occur unless we own our sin. What you see happening in verses three through six is David owning his sin. He says in verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David is not saying, ah, you caught me at a bad moment. But he is saying at the core of my being, I'm a bad person. At the core of my being, I am born with sin already in my heart. The bottom line today is this truth. We cannot experience repentance until we own our sin and realize that we are totally depraved. And not only that, we can't do anything in our own power about our depravity. Look at what David said in verse 4, where he says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David's sin, just like our sin, began against God. You see, here's maybe the best definition I've ever read on understanding sin. Sin occurs because we are not satisfied with what God has given us, or we don't trust God enough to take care of us, so we go around God to try to get those needs met, and when we go around God, it always leads us to sin. 
You see, for David, God was the most important person that he offended. Now, did he offend Bathsheba? Absolutely he did. He, he used and abused her. Did he offend Uriah? He had the man killed. Absolutely. What he did with Bathsheba, what he did to Uriah was absolutely deplorable. But understand that what he did with his sin to God was even worse. You see, this is hard for us to understand. We always focus on what our sin does to others. But rarely do we think about how our sin insults our Creator. Rarely do we think about how our sin insults God who made us and who has blessed us with every blessing. Rarely do we think about how our sin is a slap in the face as one thing, and I can't remember who it was, but somebody said a long time ago that our sin is cosmic treason against God. And we rarely stop to think about how our sin insults God. But may I show you exhibit A to convince you of how horrible our sin is. And that exhibit that, that, that exhibit that testifies to our sinfulness is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross testifies to the severity of our sin against God. Look, God did not die for what your sins did to someone else. God died because of what your sins did to him. That's how grievous our sin is before God. And we've got to own our sin. And you know what that means? Or better stated, what it doesn't mean? It doesn't mean that you say, I'm going to turn over and you leave. I'm going to try to do better. Verse 6, David said in Psalm 51, God, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. We focus on behavior. God focuses on the heart. And until you deal with the heart, any change that you make will be superficial and it will be temporary. God does not want us to just stop certain behaviors. God instead wants to recreate our hearts, which will naturally change our behavior. When we confess our sin to God, we, we usually focus on what we have done, not on the fact of the cause of why we did what we have done. Your actions are not the problem. The heart that produces the action is the problem. And that's what needs to be changed. That's what it means to own our sin, is to realize that our heart is desperately wicked and we can do nothing to change it. And God cannot restore our lives until we take ownership of our sin. You say, Pastor, this is not a very hallmark special sermon. This didn't make me feel very good. Well, for us to have good news, we have to be exposed to bad. So let, 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 let's make a quick pivot to statement number three. Repentance is guaranteed because of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
If you have, and this is going to be the audience participatory portion of our program in just a second, okay? That means I'm going to stop after I ask a question, and you're going to answer, or I'm going to add about five or six points to my sermon. If you've hung around here any, any length of time, if you've listened to, to me behind a pulpit or a lectern, when I talk about the Old Testament, I'll make a statement almost exclusively that it's my belief, my firm conviction, that the one point of the Old Testament is to point us in one direction. It's to point us to who? Jesus. That's it, Jesus. And you see that in these verses. Every word of verses 7 through 12 cries out for Jesus Christ. In verse 7, purge me with hyssop. The hyssop plant, did you know that the hyssop plant in the Old Testament, it was used for various reasons, but there were two big reasons that the people would use the hyssop plant. One, they used it back in Exodus when the death angel came to pass over, they would apply the blood of the lamb to their doorpost and they used the hyssop plant as their paintbrush. The, the other big thing in the Old Testament used with the hyssop plant was to do with lepers. What, not lepers, not the animal, lepers, the person. And when a leper would come in and desire to be cleansed and healed, they would take blood of a sacrifice. They would ceremonially use the hyssop plant to sprinkle that blood upon the leper. And that would be used by God in his process of healing and restoration. At the Passover, that blood from that hy- that used by that hyssop plant, that blood symbolized that the lamb had taken the death penalty for the sin of that family. It was a picture to us that God would put our sin upon Jesus Christ and punish him for our sin. For the leper, that blood symbolized God's ability to make all things new and to create new life where there was death. And the resurrection of Jesus makes it possible for all things to become new. The cross takes away the penalty of our sin and the resurrection makes us new. This is why David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Let me hear joy and gladness, verse 8. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David knows that God's intention with conviction, with repentance is good. Conviction's painful. Who among us wakes up and says, I can't wait for God to convict me of my sin today? I mean, how many of us wake up and we say, God, whatever you do, make sure I know I'm a sinner today. Most of us don't have to do that, right? We, we, we try to be spouses or parents and we realize very quickly that we're not. David says, I know that God's way of making me new is through convicting me. Conviction's painful, but God used conviction to wake David up. The broken bones of our heart and soul are God's way of waking us up. Look, conviction is painful. Feeling biblical guilt over sin is painful. And sometimes it can even be humiliating, but it's not as painful and as destructive as unconfessed sin in your life because David said that that person will not prosper. Look at verse 9. 
hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Who can blot out our iniquities? No one but Christ alone. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Who can create a clean heart within us? Nobody but Jesus. Who can give us a new spirit? No one but Jesus. Look, I want you to understand this morning, for all your brokenness, for all your sin, you cannot do anything about it. Your pastor has no power over it. You can't go buy enough of Joel Osteen's books to give you the power to do it, and you can't get in enough of Oprah's book clubs to give you the power to do it. The only hope we have is Jesus. That's it. And if it's not him, it's nobody. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but his blood. David's repentance shows us the great love that Christ has for us. Fourth statement. Repentance makes us available for God to use. After he offers repentance, verse 13, he says, Then I will. Then I'll teach transgressors your way. Then I'll sing to you. Then I'll declare this and that about you. David experienced repentance, and that resulted in a desire to honor and to glorify God. There is a connection between repentance and our service, our good works. Our good works are not rendered to God in order to experience repentance. Our good works is offered to God as a result of experiencing our repentance. But I want you to think about this as we try to put a bow on it. I want to go back to the very first statement I said. Everyone sins. Everyone has the ability to destroy their lives with the power of sin. Everyone sins. It's what you do after your sin that makes the difference between life and death. Because just as true as that statement that everyone sins is the statement that everyone has the opportunity to experience God's redeeming power through grace. You see, 2 Samuel is much more than a story about David's confrontation with sin. It is a story of the gospel. When Nathan confronted David, he said to David, David, you are the man. David, you are guilty. Do you know what the law says to us? The law says to us, it says to me, Jonathan, you are the man. You're guilty. It says to you, you are the man, you are the one, you are the guilty one. Remember when they put Jesus, when Pilate put Jesus for the people, Pilate said, behold the man. Pilate said, here is the man who stands before you condemned and guilty. David was guilty of his sin. He was the man who was guilty. You and I are people guilty of our sin. But at the cross, Jesus was accused of being the man. He was accused of being guilty, and he was guilty only in our place, not because of his sin, but because of ours. But did you catch 
the little statement made right at the end of the text in 1 Samuel. Listen, in fact, I just, I just want to read it to you. It's 1 Samuel 12. Nevertheless, let me make it to verse 13. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord all you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you, David, shall die. David, though you're guilty, you won't die, but your son will. David's innocent son died in his place. Many years later, there would be a perfect son of God who would come to this earth. And instead of me having to die spiritually for my sins, he did. That's what makes it possible for our lives to be restored. It's not about what you can do, my friend. It's about what Jesus has done for you. And I believe I may be talking to someone here in this building today who was kind of like I was many years ago, thinking that I had to add something to my performance to impress God. Thinking that my salvation or my sanctification hinged, sure, on what Jesus did, but also on what I contributed God was God before I got here. He's going to be God a long time after I go. I, I, I add absolutely nothing to him. I mean everything to him, but I add nothing to him. He was God before September 13, 1978. He was rock and rolling just like he always has. And if my last day is July 25th, 2021, he's going to be God July 26th. He wants me, but I add nothing to him. And I think maybe there may be someone here today and you're thinking that your sin has messed you up and you're thinking through all the things you have to do to get things right. You're thinking of all the righteous religious things you need to do before God will forgive you. I'm going to offer you this pastoral word. Stop. Stop. Stop trying to give God enough coins to where he gives you credit. Jesus has died for you. His blood has been spilled for you. Rest in the grace of God. He loves you more than anyone will ever love you here or in the hereafter. I don't mean to say that you can go do what you want to do, live a life. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you don't have to twist his arm to cause him to love you. His son had thorns twisted and placed upon his brow because he loves you. 
For some of you today, you need to repent of your sin and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. You can do that right where you are by simply calling out to God. As you admit to God that you're a sinner and you ask him to be your Savior. For others of you, you're struggling with sin and you've been dealing with a sin. And it may not be a sin that you've committed against someone. It may be a sin of self-righteousness. You think that you've got the answers to fix your problem, but the problem's still there. I can only point you to one place that I know that can take whatever you have and deal with it. And it's not me, and it's not my office, and it's not your staff. It's Jesus. In just a second, I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to stand and sing. I don't know what God's put on your heart today. I don't know what condition you, can't, you were in when you walked in here today, but I know how you can walk out. I know you can walk out being freed from the power of sin if you'll give your sin to a Savior. He who knew no sin, Paul said, became sin for us. Whatever God's calling you to do, my only ask is that you put your yes on the table. That's all I'm asking. Whatever it is, that you just tell God yes. He'll handle the details. You take the first step. He will enable you to take the next. Whatever God's placed upon your heart to do, would you do it? This altar is open for you to pray. You can pray right where you are. Whatever God's calling you to do, just listen and obey his voice today. Father God, thank you that Jesus came and did for me what I could never, ever do for myself. And I pray now, whatever has been placed upon each heart in this room, that today we will let go of whatever that is, and we would seek you. We would throw ourselves upon your mercy and grace. Have your will and your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen.